Also, today is our final sermon in the Holy Spirit series. So we, if I have done my math right, we've been talking about this for 26 weeks. Uh, years ago, someone um, said, hey, we never talk about the Holy Spirit at, at the church. And I got a little defensive, you know, got a little prideful. And so I went back in my sermons and I typed in search spirit and I found all the instances in which I had referenced the Holy Spirit and then I sent them an email with all the lists because it's very you know immature and I said no here's all the times I've referenced it but their point was right just in terms of like how we approach this as a theological concept as church members it's it hadn't been something that was just sort of in the air and, I, and I'm hopeful that after 26 weeks of this we will we, it will just be part of who we are part of our vernacular part of the way that we kind of approach Christianity to think about the things of the Spirit so that no one will be able to say, oh, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. It should be clear that we are all about the Holy Spirit. We're focused on the Spirit. We want to live by the Spirit. So, as we start, um, I was trying to think like, wow, okay, how do you wrap up a sermon series that's been going for 26 weeks about the Spirit? What do you say? Like, you know, at, at first I was like, I'll do a recap of all 26 weeks, and I started that process, and I'm like, this is going to be a 12-hour sermon. I better not do that. Um, and so I edited it down a little bit, and I thought, you know what I need to know, uh, what I want to know is, what is the one thing that if people were to walk away, that if they could think back three, four, five years from now, like, oh yeah, I remember, we talked about the Spirit, and this is the thing I would want them to walk away thinking, knowing, believing, living, doing. And that's what I want to talk about today. What is the one thing about the Spirit? So, I say that, and I'm going to start, we're going to kind of come at this a little backwards. English is a living language, meaning that when you were a kid, uh, depending on how old you are, there are words that are either have been introduced into the common vernacular that you didn't have when you were a kid, or the definitions of those words have changed. So, I remember visiting this elderly woman in her home. She was kind of homebound, couldn't get out much, and I went to visit her. You know, this is me when I'm first in my ministry. She's sitting in her lazy boy chair. We're speaking in her living room, and I said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm just chilling. And I'm like, whoa, that's very progressive and modern. That's, whoa, she's just chilling. And I'm, I was going through this whole thing in my mind, like, wow, this lady's with it. She gets it. She gets the cool, hip, edgy kids culture. And just by saying hip, edgy kids culture, I dated myself. But anyway, she's like, I'm just chilling. And then it, as she explained, she was saying that she was literally chilling. Like, she was cold. She was freezing. And I thought she was just like, you know, laid back. I'm just vibing with life, you know, right now. But language changes. Language constantly changes. Um, so there are people who have been self-designated like word warriors in our culture. You know what I mean? And some of you are these people. Every time you hear a definition of word that you don't agree with, that you are calling that out. You are making sure people both understand the correct original definition of the word or they are pronouncing it the right way. And when you hear words like corporate speak or whatever, you're just like, you don't like any of that because you want it to be the way it's supposed to be. Um, so the classic example is when you're an elementary teacher and a student raises their hands and say, you know, Miss Harris, can I go to the bathroom? What does the elementary teacher say? No. They say, I don't know, can you? Very sarcastically back to you. At least that's what my experience was. And then they'll correct you and say, no, the correct word is may. Or if somebody says, uh, how are you doing? You say, good. They're like, actually, you're doing well. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of mentality. But uh, so keep fighting the good fight. You know, I'm all for that. But I want to give you an example of how just concepts, words, meanings change. And we're going to, I promise we're going somewhere that's valuable. So stick with me. 
But um, back in the day, you know, this is, we're talking about centuries, nice used to mean silly. Nice used to mean silly. So Minnesota nice would have meant something different uh, 200 years ago. Nice used to mean silly. Silly used to mean happy. So if you called somebody silly, it was not silly. It was that they were kind of just like a jovial, fun-loving person. Happy used to mean wise. So imagine if you transported some time traveler back from 200 years ago and they were just, they would not know what we were talking about because the words of meanings and definitions have changed to, to, to such a degree. I, I'm going to share this with you. The word fizzle is a word that if you're a third grade boy would make you laugh. And we talk about it like something fizzles out, but there was a different definition not too long ago. Um, the, and this isn't true just for, for like words and time. This is true for geography. Because if you grew up in the South and somebody said, do you want a Coke? You were supposed to respond, what kind of Coke? Like there's different kinds of Coke. What do you, they weren't talking about cherry Coke, vanilla Coke, diet Coke. They used the word Coke to mean soda in the South. How weird is that? That's a strange thing. And some Southern people are like, no, that's the way it's supposed to be. No, it's not the way it's supposed to be. But in Minnesota, soda is called pop. That's weird. That's a strange thing. I try to just keep everybody happy because I'm so diplomatic by saying soda pop. That just, you know, that just makes everybody feel good. Also in Minnesota, this is ge ge geographic, beg doesn't mean to earnestly implore. Beg means something that you get at the grocery store that you put your food in. That's what a beg is. If you ever, when you, if you're not from Minnesota and you come to Minnesota and they're like, you know, would you like a beg? And you're like, what are you talking about? Oh, you mean bag. You're saying it wrong. And by the way, you are saying it wrong. That is, that is wrong. You're saying it wrong. So here's the deal with the word warriors is people tend to defend not the original meaning of the word. They tend to defend the meaning uh, that they're most familiar with. That's the definition of the word that they, they tend to defend. And some of you are sitting there saying, because you saw this slide pop up and you're like, wait a second, sentences aren't supposed to end with prepositions. That's why I highlighted in red for some of you because that's the color of mistakes, right? All right, here's the better slide. People tend to defend the meaning of the word with which they're most familiar. But did you know that even today you can end sentences with prepositions? It's allowed. Whoever, I don't know, whoever decreed, decreed sentences can now end with prepositions. That's proper grammar. So you can say beg and you can say with and you can whatever you want. It's all just, you know, chaos. Now I bring this up. I call your attention to this concept for a specific reason. Because this definition confusion can maybe have some, some impact in like, you know, interactions when you go to a different part of the country and somebody says, do you want a Coke? And you say, sure. And they, bring, they say, what kind? And you're confused. But it can actually have an impact on how we engage with Scripture. And, 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 the, and the reason it can is because the, um, how we understand Scripture is based on how we understand our words and the way that we use those words in 2021 in our geographic area. But sometimes when Scripture was translated into English, the way a translator used a word is a little bit different. And so I want to, I, I think we could give you millions of examples of this, but I, but I want to settle on one here in a second. But I want to give you this just brief little history that I think is fascinating so around 1300, 1400, there were, these two, there were these people who said, you know what, we need to translate the Bible into 
English so that people can have access to it, know what God wants from them. But the powers that be, the church at large says, no, that's a terrible idea because if you do that, you're injecting uncertainty. And what if there's not a one-to-one equivalent with some of the words between ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek into English and the meaning is going to change. And so to preserve the original meaning, they said you cannot translate the Bible into any other languages. So they had a translation in Latin and then they had the, the original, well, the manuscript copies that they had in Greek and Hebrew. They didn't want them to change it, but a couple of guys were like, no, we're going to do it. The common man needs to know. So one guy, William Tyndale, tried to do that, and uh, he made his own translation. And this is the craziest story. They should make like a spy novel out of this because he actually went on the run because the church, the power that was in charge at the time said, you cannot do that, and we are going to uh, try you and murder you because you translated the Bible into the English language. So he went on the run. He was a fugitive. I mean, it was like hiding in people's basements and all crazy. They finally caught up with him and, uh, and then they tied him to a stake and burned him for that. Uh, John Wycliffe also did it and they were going to try him for heresy and kill him as well. Uh, but he ended up dying of a stroke before they could do that. But the, that's the degree that people were saying, no, you cannot change the Bible because once you start to mess with those words, then we start to be confused as to what the actual definition is. Now, I could give you dozens, hundreds of examples of how we struggle with that, but I want to settle on one that I think is particularly important for our moment, for our day and age, and this sermon series. And it's the word spiritual. Spiritual. So we're at church. It's a Sunday morning. It's a foggy day in May. And so we would think, okay, we come to church and we understand spiritual as someone who is maybe a little extra intense about their faith. We would call them a spiritual, they're a spiritual person. They're, they're into it. And, and they're, they're, we would even maybe think of them as like varsity Christians, you know, they're team A, they're spiritual, they're focused, they're, they're really intense about Christianity, they're, they're spiritual. Or we might use it to describe an aspect of our lives. We have our careers, we have our families, we have our hobbies, but then there's also what we even have, for our spiritual life. That's, that's the part of our life that's kind of focused on church and God and maybe getting up early and reading our Bible or praying. That's our, that's our spiritual life. So that's how we would use the word spiritual in, in Woodbury in 2021, generally speaking. So taking that idea, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says this. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual... You restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. And so we read that and we think, oh, hey, you know, it's the intense Christians, the real serious Christians, that's, that's what they should do. The, the ones who have like achieved, you know, they're, they're at Christianity, Christianity 501, not 101. They have got their master's degree in Christianity. It's the real serious Christians. That's who should restore and look out and carry one another's burdens. That's, the, that's, that's how we would read that with our idea of spiritual in mind. We would think of it as a strong, mature Christian. I just think that's a natural way that we would understand that. So that's true in the church. In our culture, the word spiritual 
I mean, just forget about it. It can mean whatever you want it to mean. So it can mean people who are into any metaphysical kind of stuff, like Eastern mysticism and Zen and crystals and occult and astrology and all that kind of stuff. Or people that really get into mindfulness or meditation or people who are one with nature. You know, those, we, would, we would maybe broadly describe those people as spiritual. You remember last week I told you about the lady who had hired a shaman to cleanse her house of evil spirits before she put it on the market. We would think, well, that person's kind of, they're spiritual. They're, they care about that kind of stuff. Um, Sam Harris is a name some of you may recognize. He's a kind of a popular atheist, podcaster, author, and he wrote a book about atheist spirituality. Where I'm like, what? what is atheist spirituality? Isn't that like the opposite? No, there, here's a way for an atheist to be a spiritual person. So the, it's, like a, it's like this empty box that it could just put whatever meaning that you want in it. But in Scripture, the definition of spiritual is not broad at all. It's very specific, and I think it's important for us to kind of reclaim a biblical idea of what spiritual is. In fact, in the Bible, the word spiritual is a made-up word. It's just a, it's a word that Paul the Apostle coined to describe life in the Spirit, a spiritual life, life about the Spirit. He took the word for Holy Spirit, and then he just made it into an adjective, and he just started using it everywhere. He just coined it. Paul actually did that a lot because sometimes uh, religious concepts are tough to describe, so he would just make up new words to describe it, and this is one of them that he made up. So he took for the word for Holy Spirit, made it an adjective, so it's not spiritual. In the Bible, the word spiritual means holy spiritual. It's always about the spirits, holy spiritual. Well, that may not seem that particularly important here, but let me, let me tell you why. Because spiritual is not karma, it's not transcendental meditation, it's none of those things. There is no understanding in the Bible for those things in terms of the concept of spiritual. A spiritual life is a life exclusively lived in, by, through, about the Holy Spirit. That's what being spiritual is. A life defined by, the pursuit of, surrounded by, guided by. That is spiritual life. That's, that's what it is for us. So in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, brothers and sisters, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that's not the varsity team. That's not the A team. That's not the best of the best, the cream of the crop. That's everybody who aspires to live a life in the spirit. That's all of us. That's an all skate. You who are spiritual and look at the outcomes. You are to restore. That's an important word we're going to come back to in a minute. You are to restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. You who care about the Spirit, you who are living in the Spirit, you're to restore people in the Spirit of gentleness, each of one, each one of you not looking just to yourself so that you, or excuse me, looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. In other words, that you care about the things, you watch out for the pitfalls, the moral pitfalls, the spiritual pitfalls, because you are living a life in the Spirit. This is everybody. This isn't some special person who gets paid to do this. This is all of us. We are spiritual people because we have been given the power and the presence of God to live in us. We are spiritual people. You are a spiritual person. This doesn't mean you're going to go out and like light incense and get crystals and do meditation. You are a spiritual person because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and he is working to make your life centered in the power and presence of God through the Spirit. That's what it's all about. That you are a spiritual person. Bottom line. In fact, it's kind of funny because that passage in Galatians chapter 6, the very few verses earlier are all about the fruit of the Spirit. So I don't know why we think it's like the varsity team in just a few verses later. 
So I want, this is what I want to get us to. I want us to talk about like, well, what does, what does a holy spiritual life look like? What does a holy spiritual life look like? This is what I want us to walk away from 26 weeks of talking about the Spirit with. What does a holy spiritual life look like? My, uh, my youngest, my little, my little guy, my son, just started soccer a couple weeks ago. And um, they, you know, these kids are, most of them are fairly new to the whole concept. I mean, they get that it's something about a net and you can't touch it with your hands, but they're still working out a lot of the particulars. So the coach will get them on the field and they'll, they'll to, to teach them how to, you know, kick the ball and do all these things, they play these games. Not soccer games, but they play these games. So like the, what recently the coach did is he grabbed a pool noodle and the kids are kicking the ball around and he gets to whack them with a pool noodle. And you can just imagine, it's a bunch of third grade boys. I mean, who knows what's going on? It's just like a, you know, all kinds of chaotic stuff going on in their brain and they're just all over the place. So those people that are gifted with corralling like third graders on any level, I mean, are just are just saints. And, and for some reason, as parents, I don't know when we all agreed to do this. When I took soccer, when I was in second grade, my parents just rolled up to the soccer field. I got out of the car and they just went on and did whatever. Now all the parents sit around with their chairs and, you know, watch practice. I, I, don't, I don't know why exactly, but we all do. So I, I do that too. And they had their first game uh, last Wednesday. And so they've been playing these games, you know, the coach is hitting them with a pool noodle, which is probably more therapeutic for the coach than for the kids. But they're just, you know, like, you know, okay, now you be it, or we're playing sharks and minnows or whatever. They're just playing all these different games that aren't soccer. They got to this soccer game. They're out on the field. They've got their cool little jerseys on. They got their shin guards on. They've got this teenager who's dressed up like a real ref. He's got a real whistle. They're on this big field, these tiny little humans on this big field, and they're ready to play this game. They put the ball in the middle. There's this kid there, the real ref, and his real outfit blows the real whistle and the kids all freeze because they didn't actually know what we're supposed to do now where's the coach with the pool noodle are we playing sharks and minnows what's going on like they had this vague idea of what soccer was but there wasn't like this oh now we have to kick the ball do we kick it that way that way Uh, you know it's just and they're still all over the place and they're looking to their coaches on either side the coaches are like pulling their hat like kick the ball into the net you know they'd forgotten that crucial piece of what it meant to play soccer I think there's something similar to that with the Spirit. Like, we can talk about the Spirit. We can talk about the particulars, the Greek definitions, the, the, the Old Testament expressions of the Spirit. But then what does it mean for us to live a holy spiritual life? And the Bible offers all these verbs, all these nouns around the idea of what spiritual is. It's all over the place. And so there's all these words like power and presence and filling and assurance and prayer and gentleness and victory and hope. There's all these concepts. I mean, it's huge and big. But how do we distill that into one idea that we can hold on to and we can truly, deeply live? Nobody told me growing up that the Spirit was just this thing in the book of Acts for this one time, but I somehow got that idea. And so when I'm approaching this sermon series, and I'm like, well, yeah, the Spirit showed up in the book of Acts, but it doesn't really show up anywhere else. And I turn in my Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and there's the Spirit on the very first pages of Scripture. I'm a little blown away. I'm like, whoa, the Spirit was there at the very beginning. The Spirit is there hovering over the darkness and the chaos, and and His goal is to create 
life and light into the world and create beauty. That's the Spirit. And then you begin to read further into the Hebrew Bible and you're like, oh, wow, uh, the Spirit was actually in Joseph and he did all those amazing things and he saved the nation of Israel. And the Spirit was in Moses and, and he saved the nation of Israel. And the Spirit was in David and you're like, oh, wow, the Spirit's like all over the place. And every time you see the Spirit show up, the Spirit is doing something and creating life and wholeness and well-being and, and saving and rescuing and injecting beauty and light into the world every time the Spirit shows up. And then these Old Testament authors, these prophets, they wrote. They said, hey, guess what? That Spirit that you see active in these guys, at some point, that Spirit is going to come for everybody. So Exodus chapter 36, that Spirit is coming for everybody. The breath of God, the wind of God is going to fill everyone. Okay, that's cool. And then you get to Jesus and you're like, okay, Jesus, what did he do with the Spirit? Oh, everything. He, his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus just went around the world like, like creating life and wholeness and well-being and everybody he interacted with. That's what he was doing through the Spirit. And then Jesus went away and we we're like the soccer players like, oh, what do we do now? Jesus is gone. Well, the Spirit has come for us, Acts chapter 2, the power and the presence of God living in us. And now we do what the Spirit has been doing since page 1, sentence 1 of the Scriptures. We create life and wholeness and well-being and beauty, and, and the Spirit does that in our lives, and then we do that in the lives of, the, uh, of people around us. I mean, what's the main thing? It's, it's doing what the Spirit has been doing all along. I, uh, I suspect, I could be wrong, but I suspect that there's this uni universal human um, love for HGTV. Is that just me? Like, I don't have HGTV, but like when I get my tires changed and that's the station, I'm mesmerized by what happens in those shows. Or like Extreme Home Makeover, where there's this house and it's dumpy and it's fallen apart and it's ugly and it's dark and it's dingy. And then a week later, they'll roll a couple hundred people in and then they'll move that bus. And it's just this beautiful, attractive, like, it's, it's so incredible. And I get all wound up when I watch those shows and I want to go home and take a sledgehammer to something. And I'll usually get about that far and I never get to the actual fixing it and making it better. But that process of restoration is incredible. We have a member who comes to our early service and he's restored, I don't know, a 1957 car. And he drives it into the parking lot and you do, it just turns heads. It's like, wow, it's so, so beautiful, so pretty. Like, so it's just that process of reclamation and restoration is just, I mean, it's, it's just, I feel like it's wired into our DNA to want to see that stuff happen. So the Spirit shows up in Scripture. It begins this, this reclamation process of humanity who immediately kind of goes off the rails. But when you see the Spirit working in the life of Jesus, it's so amazing to think about, like, literally what Jesus is doing. Jesus would walk around, and he would take in insult, and then he would return blessing. He would, he would take out despair, and he would return hope. He, he would take out ugliness, and he would return beauty. He would take out conflict. He would take in conflict, and he would return peace. And just one little human action, reaction and interaction at a time, Jesus was restoring the world. Just one little tiny piece at a time. Just one little brick. Just one little tile. Just one little piece that he was building, and he was restoring human wholeness and well-being. Just a little bit at a time. And this is the deal. He invites us through the power of the Spirit to join in this reclamation project. And here's where it gets really real for us. 
So, see, here's the thing. We want, when we are insulted, what we want to do is insult in return, but not an equal insult because we don't really believe in justice. We believe in retribution. So we want to insult someone to a greater degree than they did to us. And so when someone insults us, what happens is, is we return more ugliness into the world because we were hurt. So that pain, that hurt that they gave us, we return it back, but we return it back twofold or fivefold or tenfold. And this happens in one-on-one relationships, but this happens globally. Any conflict you look at in the world is this thing. No side wants to say, well, I'll just, you know, you guys treated us poorly, but we're going to return blessing anyway. No. So the news is just filled with this constant conflict because no one wants to be part of this reclamation project. They say they want justice, but they truly just want retribution. They want to grind their enemies into the dirt. That's not justice. That's not biblical justice. That's not what God has ever been about. There's this uh, tragic story from earlier this week. Some of you read it. It's just the saddest thing. It's sad on every level. And sometimes I just skip this kind of stuff because I'm like, I can't take any more sadness in the world. But I read this one, and I'll share it briefly with you. And it was a uh, fast food worker and an elderly customer. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what started it. I don't know what instigated it. But the elderly customer used a racial slur against the fast food worker Young, young man, the fast food worker said, don't say that. And the elderly customer decided that he was going to return more injustice, and he said it again. And the young clerk said, if you say that again, I'm going to punch you. And the elderly man said it again, and the clerk came over, punched this guy, put him in the hospital, and he ended up dying a few days later. I mean, every piece of that. Now, when you read the responses to that, people are like, well, of course, he got what he deserved. Yeah, man, that, that everybody should do that. Everybody should punch somebody who talks like that. Of course, what do you expect? That's because that's the way of the world. That's the way we react. That's the way we interact. We return insult for insult. We return punch for harder punch. That's the way it's always been. It's our way of thinking. If something is already broken, why not break it more? And so when, when, in terms of like a, a house restoration project, here's a falling down house and we'll pick up a rock and we'll break another window. We just pile on to the already brokenness that exists in the world. But then sometimes you hear these other stories of people who decided to absorb the injustice and the insult and the pain and the hurt. You hear these other stories of people responding in a way that's completely out of proportion to what happened to them. And I want to share one quick one with you. Um, there was, a, this has been years ago now, and I mentioned this before, so if it rings a bell, that's why. There was a KKK rally somewhere, and this is before the last few uh, months or years of all this garbage. And evidently, it's not, <laughs> not very many KK members showed up. KKK members showed up. You know, I mean, who wants to actually own that in public? I mean, people say terrible things on online, but when you actually have to go in front of people. So it was a small crowd of these racists that showed up doing, saying whatever. And because people had heard about it, this much larger crowd of people who were against racism showed up to protest those people. So you got these two sides, and they're in conflict, and this side is saying terrible things, but this side now feels morally justified in returning terrible things because they're terrible people. And so that's how you respond to terrible people. You return insult for insult. That's how our world works. And one KKK member 
got separated from the group and he ended up kind of off by himself and he's trying to run away. And once this group of counter-protesters saw that, there was, you know, blood in the water and they chased him down and they're beating him with a, you know, no war, more peace. You know, they're beating him with those protest signs. I mean, this, and there's a reporter and I actually reached out to him to confirm this story because I was like, this is unbelievable. A reporter, African-American reporter, who's, and I'll tell you why that's important in a second, who's standing on the sidelines and reporters are not supposed to beat the story. They're supposed to report the story. But this guy was like, I can't allow that human to be treated that way. And he jumped in on top of the KKK member to receive the blows of hate and evil on himself. That's the story of Jesus. That's the whole thing. And by doing that, by taking that insult, by taking that hurt, he removes it from the world. He takes an insult and he returns blessing. He takes in hate and he returns good. He takes in evil and he returns hope. That's, that is what we are called to do. That is what being a spiritual person is. That is the whole ball game. That is scoring a goal in third grade soccer. That is what it is. That is what it is. And we somehow lost the plot. Jesus, even though we were enemies, leapt in to protect us from the consequences of our own choices to absorb that hate, to return blessing, to absorb that, those lies and to return truth. And the Spirit has called us to that as well. That's the job of a Christian. It's, it's to absorb greed and return generosity. But they don't deserve my generosity. Exactly. It's bonkers to me when Christians walk around saying, well, I'm not going to help them out. They don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. That's the whole point. They don't deserve it, and we give it anyway. They don't deserve your grace. They don't. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve your kindness. That is why you give it. That is why you're spiritual. That is why the power and the presence of God has come to live in you. They do not deserve it. Neither did you. The Spirit has called us to something so different. And let's, let's maybe we can say it this way to wrap up this morning. But the spiritual life is one that responds better than the situation calls for. Let me, let me rephrase that. It responds supernaturally better than the situation calls for because it's not your own power that's doing it. It's the power of God working in you to restore the world. And little by little, we reclaim little lost ground of, of hope and healing. Maybe it's in our families. Maybe there's grudges that you've held on to and you nursed and you haven't gone to the family reunion or you haven't interacted with that relative for so long because you're holding on to that. They hurt you and they do not deserve your forgiveness. That's true. That is true. Give it anyway. This is so important. This is so vital to everything that we do as Christians. I want to wrap up with something that the, the, the Apostle Peter said. I think that's helpful to walk through. Just, just once you realize, oh, this is what the Spirit is trying to do, then it's everywhere. You'll see it on every page of Scripture. But I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want you to see what he says with this, this whole thing, this whole idea. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, this is the Jesus that's rejected by men. But he's chosen and precious in God's sight. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's all of us. That's us. 
We're being drawn together to create something beautiful in the world. Listen, this is Genesis chapter 1 stuff where the Spirit is hovering over darkness and chaos and creating life and beauty. The Spirit comes into you where there's darkness and chaos and creates life and beauty. And it comes into your relationships where there's darkness and chaos and creates life and beauty. It's the same truth from page one of Scripture that the Spirit has been doing all along. He says, you are to be a holy priesthood. You are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, what, do we got to go kill a goat and put it on an altar and burn it? No, no. Can I pause just here for a second and say, I don't know how this happened, but in modern Western Christianity, there is at least a thread of an idea that Christians are not supposed to have difficult lives. And that is just not the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is that the spiritual life is a sacrifice, that you give up your life to find it, to save it. When you try to hold on to it, that's when you lose it. The spiritual life has always been a sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice to absorb hate and injustice and hurt and pain and frustration and to breathe out goodness and blessing wholeness. It's, it's a sacrifice to do that. that is, this is a life of sacrifice, and the scriptures have never hidden that reality. Amen. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are to proclaim the virtues of him who did this for you, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, just like Genesis. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, despite the fact that you were enemies of God. You have been claimed, you've been restored, and it's time for us to turn around and do that in the world. And then he gets that in, in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and, and exiles, I urge you, this is, this is my plea to you, abstain from the desires of the flesh. Remember the, the, the Galatians chapter 5 and, and Romans chapter 8? The flesh is in conflict with the spirit. And when we give into the flesh, we are not returning wholeness and well-being into the world. Abstain from the desires of the flesh, which war against your soul. Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visit us. Don't give people an inch to criticize you because everything you have done is so kind and loving and gracious that even though they lie about you, they know deep down inside that none of it's true because you have responded with such goodness to their evil. You have responded with such kindness to their hate. You have responded with such justice to their and mercy to their injustice. Don't you can't give them an inch. They'll see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day that he visits us. How good is that? That's how we do this. Look at what he says, verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you, as an, exa leaving you an example of, of suffering, by the way, not of a bigger house or a bigger car or better looking kids or a higher achieving job of suffering. That's what we're being invited into, but that suffering produces wholeness and well-being in the world leaving you example, an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin. This is a quote from Isaiah. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And this is what God is asking of you. When someone, when, when you disagree with someone and you're just like, I just want to let them know how wrong they are. No, you inject wholeness and well-being and healing into the world. He made no threats. He could have made threats. On the cross, he could have made threats. He could have said, you know what? This is ridiculous. These people do not deserve this. They do not deserve me. Let's just do away with them all. Fire and brimstone, blow it all away. This is crazy. And instead, he said, Father, forgive them. 
They do not know what they do. And that is what we're being asked to do that. We are being asked to exhibit that radical love, and we are empowered to do so through the Spirit. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. You cannot inject wellness and goodness into the world when you are living in sin. You cannot do it. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this is, this is the whole ballgame, folks. This is what it's about. It's about you on, in your job with that coworker that is always grabbing and trying to claim things that's not, that are not theirs, trying to take credit for achievement, trying to edge you out, that you treat that person with such kindness and great, but they don't deserve it exactly. That you have a family member, a parent, a sister, a brother, that you just haven't had a good interaction with in decades. Well, they don't deserve it. You would not believe what they said about me. I would believe it, and it's exactly right that they don't deserve it, and you still absorb that injustice just like Jesus did. We're, all we're being asked to do is do what Jesus did and then return hope and healing and well-being. That's the power and presence of God living in us. That's what it's all about, the power and presence of God living in us. If we cannot get this thing right, then all the rest of the cool stuff we've talked about, well, like, what about healing and speaking in tongues and all those fun stuff? No, this is what we have to get right as, as followers of Jesus Christ. We are living this and we are reclaiming little pieces of the world one interaction at a time as we take out the ugliness and the garbage and we begin to restore the house with beauty and truth and goodness. This is what we're called to. It is a hard job and it is what we are called to and it is possible because we have the Spirit living in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the Spirit. Uh, God, we are, we, we are hearing today that we are called to this incredibly difficult task. God, I believe that virtually every person in the room or listening online or watching online can think of a situation where they are returning insult for insult, that they are returning retaliation for injustice. God, I pray that you would convict us of that and that you would give us the strength and the courage to absorb those things and to return into the world the goodness and the beauty and the truth that your spirit is always trying to create. God, I pray that you would empower us to do that job and, and to surely but slowly reclaim, recreate, restore the world to the, to the vision that you have had from the beginning. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the power. It's in Jesus' name we pray.